Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast again, Jan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, you now have the record for most times on the podcast at time number three. Wait, wouldn't you have the record? Uh, that's Since true. you've been yeah. on all of them. That's a good point. I have the record at nah, 26 times. Nice. <laughs> all right. Um, so I have a bunch of questions on my phone and we can just go through these one by one. Uh, for those who don't know, Jan is both my girlfriend, but also a really talented security engineer that works at Brave. Brave are a company that make a really sick web browser. And the web browser is designed to save you time. It's faster than a normal web browser. And it also blocks ads and trackers. And it also automatically upgrades you to HTTPS when the website only is sending a HTTP protocol link, correct? Yeah. What What's the difference between HTTP and HTTPS for those who don't know? Um, if you're using HTTP, it's like going into a room and just, you know, yelling that stuff to everyone because like anyone in the room. I know that's like a weird analogy, but uh, imagine the room is just like anyone on your Wi-Fi network. So anyone on your Wi-Fi network can like see what you're sending if it's over HTTP. Uh, if it's HTTPS, it's encrypted. So only the website that you're sending to can see. So if I'm using Brave and I go to a website and it's just HTTP, Brave just automatically puts the S there in the in the URL? Not necessarily because a lot of websites, sadly, still don't support HTTPS. So we can only do it when we know that the website supports it. And you'll know that the website supports it somehow because they'll be sending something to the browser or whatever? No, it's actually even dumber. There's just this giant list that people have compiled hmm. um, that has all the sites that don't well not all but like a lot of the sites that are known to um support https but not default to it and there's just like a dude who updates that list every day not one dude but yeah like a set of dudes who (laughs) or maybe some women too but a set of people who do this nice yeah well good on them for doing that all right cool so let's uh get into some questions Let's start off with some questions for both of us. There's a few questions at the start that were from last week, I think, that are just for me. Uh, but I think we should we should start with um, with some that have questions for both of us. All right, <clears throat> let's see. Eurisco uh, Pebanito, that's a fucking sweet name. Uh, what's your go-to snack or drunk food? <laughs> well, right now we have bark thins, bark thins which are. I don't know. How would you describe them? They're just like chocolate with random stuff in them, like mint or pretzels. That's a good one. I don't know if that's my go-to drunk food, though. I think my go-to drunk food would be more like some like fried shit, like, like you know, whatever's in the freezer that I can heat up in the microwave that will be like somewhat dank, <laughs> like a frozen burrito or something. Yeah. I haven't drank in so long that I don't actually have a drunk food, but I think if I were to be a heavy drinker, I would... Um, eat this thing that the British call a chip bap. A chip or, buddy. Yeah, or uh, depending on where you are, oh, it's like a chip buddy or a chip 
Japan or something. Right, right. But yeah, it's uh, for the Americans out there. It's like two pieces of white bread or buns filled with fries. Yeah, and probably butter and ketchup too, right? Yeah. Or as we call it in the British areas, uh, tomato sauce. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, when was the first time, I think this might be for me, when was the first time you heard a flat studio and do you think it helped you learn what a clean mix slash master actually sounds like? I would say the first time I heard flat sound in general probably was at a doof, honestly, because they're outside and so and the sound systems are kv2s usually at those parties which are actually like insanely good sound systems um i don't know if they're exactly flat but i mean no speaker is exactly flat right like every speaker has certain coloration to it and stuff like that also i think it's worth noting that like totally flat actually sounds pretty bad because our ears are like you know the fletcher munson curves exist our ears are more susceptible to perceiving like the human voice range frequencies like two to four kilohertz more because from an evolutionary perspective it's like more important for us to hear those frequencies than other frequencies Mm. so if you get stuff completely flat and disregard that curve completely uh then those frequencies sound a lot louder to us when um so actually when sonar works and software like that tries to um correct for speakers and headphones are they flattening it are they like just making it look like that curve so i think um they're most likely trying to make it look like that curve i I think that would be the that would make the most sense because to our ears technically that is flat like Mm -hmm. our ears are not flat they're they're well everyone's ears are different for starters so flat for one person may not necessarily be flat for another but yeah i definitely think that um if so I, i'm sure sonar works is doing some sort of tilt shift at the end or something right. usually when matt comes in here and aligns my room we get it completely flat and then at the end we put this big tilt filter on the entire mix so like on on my master once we get it running flat according to room eq wizard which is the software he uses to take measurements we then just put a big tilt shift filter that, that takes out a lot of high frequencies and boosts a lot of low frequencies because that just sounds more natural to your ears uh, the next thing Eurisco says is people say trust your ears. What do you think about that statement for new producers with little to no musical experience? I think it's fucking stupid and you should <laughs> learn to read meters. Your ears don't know shit without experience. Um, I think you can do a good mix with bad hearing and good awareness, but I don't think you can do a good mix with good hearing and shitty awareness. Like, for instance, a newborn baby has probably the best hearing right but they have no awareness of like even the world let alone a daw so they couldn't do a mix down yeah i think that advice also kind of sucks because um like no music exists in a vacuum like usually when people are playing your tune it'll be in like they'll play other tunes before after it and Mm -hmm. if it just sounds like way different from those then it'll sound bad to people yeah definitely if you're talking about music in the sense of uh producing it for dj sets yeah, or playlists. Or yeah, or playlists, like or yeah, I suppose you're right. Like, no one's really just listening to your one song and then being like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Guess I'll go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. <laughs> That's my one song limit. <laughs> uh, all right, these questions are for you, Jan. What got you into music production? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I think it was just something to do. So I've been into, like, uh, before... A long time ago, I was like into classical music and jazz composition. And in high school, and even earlier than that, like middle school, I was doing a bunch of that. 
And at some point I just got really bored because if you've done much like classical music, it's really full of rules and there's only like there's not really sense. You, you like your entire sound design palette is just orchestral instruments and that's very limiting. So I think the thing that's really cool about electronic music is you, you don't have like any limitations. So did you um, do you remember what your first uh, experience with electronic music was like when you first heard it? Oh, like when I first heard electronic music. Um, yeah, I, I would say I'm a pretty late comer to that. It must have been. Um, I mean, everyone's kind of exposed to like Daft Punk, which is electronic right. music. Yeah, growing like up, around the so. world and shit. Yeah, probably would have been something like that. Right. Yeah, that's. I used to love that song actually when I was like ten years old. Yeah. Um. So. You sort of, as you were learning classical music, heard some stuff like Daft Punk and whatnot and were like, oh, this is like a really cool palette of sounds that they're using and all that sort of stuff. And then later on in life decided that was something you wanted to pursue and get into. Yeah, I think it kind of came by as an accident because I I bought like a MIDI keyboard that just had the Ableton trial version Mm. and I just started playing with that. I was like, this is kind of cool. But Ableton has like such a steep learning curve that if you're just playing around with it, and like not watching tutorials, I think you only really explore like a really small set of its features. Right. Which is what I was doing for a while. Yeah, but I mean, I would say you're pretty accustomed to steep learning curve stuff. So for people listening who aren't aware, you have a physics degree from MIT, which is <laughs> like, I'm sure, a, a lot steeper of a learning curve than Ableton. Well, I, I actually might disagree because when you go to school for something, like there's a curriculum, there's a syllabus, like there's people telling you what is the next thing you should be learning. And I think in fields like electronic music, it's there's no clear syllabus, right? Like you kind of have to say like, this is my goal. Like I want to make music that sounds like this and then kind of figure out what are the steps to getting there and like what tutorials you should be looking at, et cetera. Yeah. I think at this time online, it's pretty easy to be like, I want to make dubstep. And then it's like, all right, well, you just go to the dubstep guy's YouTube channel and he's got all the information there now. Like you just go to like AU5's YouTube channel or something like that. Right. Right. I guess there's like, if you say like, well, I think it, it kind of depends on like how specific your goal is because if your goal is... Like, I want to um, make dubstep or I want to sound like Skrillex. Like, those, there's tons of YouTube tutorials for both of those. And you can just Google how to sound like Skrillex. But if your goal is to, like, make this very specific sound that you heard in some, like, random song, then you might not know, like, what are the steps I have to take to get there, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're saying, like, if it's your own idea in your own head that's, like, not... a thing that can be learned from a tutorial because it doesn't exist yet or something or if it's something that doesn't there's like no word for it uh, that is like being used for in youtube channels right there's like a sound that you hear in a song that you would only describe as like a glissy pokey sound yeah exactly and you're like how do i make this glissy pokey sound (laughs) right gotcha cool all right uh next question how did you meet me Oh, how did I meet you? Um, <laughs> SoundCloud, actually. Is yeah, the answer to actually that. on SoundCloud. I guess we technically met because we were both playing at this very tiny um, Northern California festival called Priceless last summer. But I, I didn't talk to you because I was too shy or something. So. <laughs> yeah, and then you messaged me on SoundCloud after and you're like, hey, sick set. And I was like, thanks, add me on Facebook. Yeah. And then and we, we chatted kind of a bunch. Friends. Yeah. All right. What BPM do you like to make your mixes? This is for you as well. I want to make a track in hopes that you will throw it in a mix. 
this dude uh, likes your mixes. That's really sweet. Um, I don't. So yeah, lately I guess I've been going. So I've actually done sets. Like I did a set at DefCon where I went through like my entire BPM collection. If you if you think of like 140 as the same as 70, mm-hmm. so I think I went all the way from 70 to 140 and like back to 70. Then oh, that's cool. So yeah, I think actually I would actually like music that is um that is at the bpms i very very rarely play which is about 115 to 130 (laughs) so yeah yeah. like i'm always looking for like more cool stuff um to help like bridge those transitions yeah i feel like um one of the only artists who's really making super playable shit at that tempo is uh pedestrian tactics yeah actually yeah he has some really cool like 130 stuff yeah yeah i really like his his 130 stuff um, yeah, I, I kind of do the same thing with my sets. I start, I usually start around 70, like all the more schlunky, like deep dubstepy shit. And then I start, well, I, then I usually like ramp up into the 75 stuff, which is the more like hybrid EDM stuff. Yeah. And then usually go to 80, which is just like the faster end of the EDM shit. And then 85 to 88 is like all my halftime stuff. And then sometimes I'll like play a few hundred BPM things at the end. Like I have a, I think a copycat thing that I play sometimes at the end. And then my culprit remix is also a hundred BPM. And yeah. Um, yeah. It's fun. If you can like get yourself back to the start again at the mm-hmm. end and start going back into dubstep. Cause it's like that 70 BPM dubstep just hits so hard mm-hmm. in America at least. So it's kind of like where you want to start and end. All right. That was email number one oh of a lot. It's going to be a lot. Long All right, let's just attack this one because it's a short question. Do you think Ill Gates could be Joe Exotic's illegitimate son? Um, I feel like politically they're kind of... Actually, no, maybe not. So for what it's worth, Bill and I haven't finished watching The Tiger King on Netflix. No, we're close. We're like one episode away. Yeah, we're like one episode away. Uh, Yeah, I can kind of see the hair and like mustache resemblance. So one one time somebody came up to me and was like, man, Ill Gates, like this was before I even knew Dylan. Uh, they were like, man, Ill Gates really looks like a Pua. And I was like, what's a Pua? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, P-U-A, like a pickup artist. So no way. No, he does not look like a P-U-A. Um, I didn't even know what a P-U-A was until this guy explained it to me. And then I looked into it. And there's like dudes who write books on just how to pick up women and shit. I feel like my stereotype of a PUA is like a guy with a black fedora. Mm. Well, he, Dylan did wear a black fedora for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. And that. then he had like the shaven side heads and like a weird mustache and shit. And like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I think Dylan is way cooler than the Tiger King dude. Yeah, I think Joe so too. Exotic. I think the maybe what this guy's seeing is a resemblance is just that they're both somewhat eccentric looking and they both have like these really flamboyant sort of styles of fashion and whatnot but yeah the tiger king is sick i really like it it's a good show definitely worth watching all right um you can choose two or you can answer both this is by ray power favorite flavor of chips salt and vinegar Hmm. so i don't know if anyone knows about uh vegemite but there's this thing in australia called vegemite and it's basically a yeast extract. So it kind of tastes like soy sauce or nutritional yeast flakes. And there's a thing that we do in Australia where we just get two pieces of white bread. This is also basically a chip buddy. <laughs> and you butter the bread and then put Vegemite on the bread. And then you put salt and vinegar chips on the sandwich. And then you crush it together with the two pieces of bread and eat it. 
and it gives your bread like this uh it gives your sandwich this crunchy texture and it's it's pretty damn good so i would have to say salt and vinegar for that reason as well because it's <laughs> it gives you the ability to make chip buddies all right next question i'm also a long-time music producer looking to get into video content creation <clears throat> are there any suggestions you have for someone starting out i'm mostly having trouble not being awkward sitting there talking to myself yeah that's literally the exact skill that you need to have to do that kind of stuff you need to be able to sit there and talk to yourself and feel like you're addressing an audience because you are addressing the biggest possible audience which is the internet um, so you just have to pretend that you're talking to people and it's definitely hard to abstract an audience that you're performing for. But I also think that that's the exact same mechanic that you need as a producer because you're sitting in your studio writing music for no audience, right? You have to abstract that audience and, and like pretend that there's an audience that you're writing for. So you have to like pretend like you're playing it to somebody like a dance floor whilst writing it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Nope, not really. I haven't made many videos. Okay, you've made some sick videos. I have, but they're always like, yeah, I, I guess I find this difficult too, because when I'm talking to no one in particular, I just kind of lose my train of thought and mm. then start to like, like say a lot of things that don't actually make any sense. So. Right. Yeah, that's the other hard thing, right? Is like trying to uh, create a cohesive, like I find if I sit there first and think about all the points and then go and attack the, the video, um, like I kind of think the whole script in my head a couple of times over like 20 minutes before I record the video mm. and then I record the video and kind of just regurgitate it again. Do you usually take a record in one take or do you have to? I usually record in one take. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause when I've seen your videos, they've always been, they sound very polished, almost like you're giving a talk or something that you've practiced a bunch. And it's just really cool to know that that's not what's going on. It's yeah. just kind of off the top of your head. So well, it doesn't seem that way. Well, the reason I think it might seem that way is because I think I have the ability to turn a mistake into not a mistake and make it look like I meant to say that. Like, for instance, if I am doing something in Ableton and then I'm like trying to explain how to set up MIDI triggered side chaining, but then I accidentally like click on a thing and it loads the wrong plugin or whatever, I'd be like, oh, so what I just did there was a mistake. I accidentally clicked this and that's why it loaded that plugin just in case you do that. And then like, and then go back to what I was doing sort of thing. So it's like I, I turn a mistake into like a, a potential moment in which you can learn something from it. Mm, I see. And then that's why it just feels like the video is full of information, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Next email has the subject heading pingers, bruh. So <laughs> what? Do you know what pingers are? What's a pinger? A pinger is um, what in Australia you call a, like a pill, like of MDMA. Oh, I see. Is is it just MDMA or is it like any drug in a pill form? I think it can be any drug in a pill form, actually. Nice. I'm not sure. Um, I have not taken a whole lot of pingers in my lifetime. <laughs> just mostly because I was always like, for that reason, because they're just sketchy, full of all sorts of shit. Um, all right. Someone whose name is Quazan Beats says, just started getting into podcasts. Yours is probably the best so far. Thanks, man. My question is, do you think we'll eventually... Uh, do you think we're eventually going to hit a wall and it'll be harder to come up with new genres and trends in the electronic scene? I've thought about this a lot, actually. Um, I'm still not sure where I stand on it, but sometimes I'll have days where I'm like, fuck, like every idea has been created. And then other days I'll be like, fuck, there's so many more combos. I, I, honestly, I honestly think the answer is no, because at the broadest level, you can think of how many possible 
like one minute songs there are in the universe and i'm like that's probably like larger than the number of atoms in the universe it's just like an incomprehensibly large number and so like i don't really know if what subset that big number is like things that really make sense to our ears and sound like quote-unquote music but just intuitively it seems like that would be still like a really uncountably large set of things yeah i mean it's kind of like thinking about the chess game problem right it's like yes there is like after move three like twenty thousand different possible games that could exist or whatever but only really like 50 or 60 of them are sensible um same with music i guess like only so many of them are actual sensible things that we'd give a shit about i've been having this recurring thought lately that um a lot of the stuff that gets really popular at this point is just combinations of two other things (laughs) so like for instance ganja white knight is just a combination of hans zimmer and dubstep (laughs) and like uh you know excision is just a combination of transformers and dubstep and you know metallica is just country music and metal and you know, Skrillex is just pop music and dubstep and so on and so forth. Like, I, And I feel like at, at that point, like we're going to start getting into some really interesting combinations where somebody, like a lot of people figure this out and they're just like, oh, it's, you know, this is the new meta thing to do is like find one really popular thing, combine it with another genre that it's not designed for and then create new genres that way. All right. Eric Bettencourt says, what is your opinion of Bitwig? Pros and cons compared to Ableton. All right. One pro is you get custom key commands in Bitwig. That's really cool. You also have bounce in place in Bitwig, which is also really cool. You have MPE, which stands for something multi-pitch expression or something, which means if you make a chord in a MIDI clip, you can pitch bend every note of that chord differently, which is pretty fucking sweet um what else can you do bitwig has its own modulation system which is not janky like the max for live system that ableton has not that max for live is that janky but it i don't know it doesn't feel as robust as the bitwig system what else bitwig has more warp modes it has like 15 instead of six or whatever um can't remember what else there is but yeah there's a lot of Things that Bitwig has that Ableton does not have. Uh, hey, Mr. Bill. This comes from Colsebs12321. Huge fan of the podcast. I was just wondering if it is necessary slash helpful for someone to live in a city with a bigger bass music scene like Denver in order to get noticed as an artist slash performer. For example, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it feels like the scene here is kind of odd just wanted your opinion so we actually talked literally talking about this yesterday (laughs) yeah we talked about this yesterday um what was the conclusion that we came to i think you said you thought like if you're a smaller artist who's just starting out then yes it does matter but at some point like you tour enough that it doesn't really matter where you live yeah i think so i think when you're starting out it's nice to be surrounded by a lot of stuff that is you know similar to what you want to be doing probably like when you're getting into computer science or something it was probably a good thing that you were in the bay area already right uh yeah but I, I think it also depends on your learning style because a lot of people are really collaborative by nature and they like being in places where there's other people to work on stuff with and like start projects with and some people are just more loners i think i'm actually more of like a working by myself type person where you know, I can get stuff done pretty much anywhere <laughs> right. as long as I have like some peace and quiet. 
and like an internet connection yeah. and uh, endless supply of sparkling water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I converted uh, sparkling water and uh, bark thins into Brave web browser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would agree. I think like starting out, I was glad to be in Sydney where there was a lot of people who were writing Psytrance on Ableton. So I got to learn a lot from them, specifically me and Ryan wrote a lot of music together. So it's, I, I found as soon as I had a friend who was doing the same thing as me, the learning got like pretty exponential because we were able to like bounce ideas off one another. And then, you know, I would learn different things at different times to him. He would learn different things at different times to me. And then we'd get together one night, smoke a bunch of weed and do like a 14 hour session on Ableton. And then we'd just exchange all the information that we'd been learning in our spare time, basically. And then we'd both be way smarter and then that would accelerate both of our learnings even quicker because we're both then way better at Ableton after leaving that session and then come back the next week and do the same thing. And and the learning got pretty exponential and quick at that point. Um, So I would say in that sense, it's good to be around at least one person, maybe potentially more if, if you're trying to learn and get good at production. And then obviously if you want to play shows, it's nice to be somewhere where shows actually happen. I know in Milwaukee, there's the Miramar Theater, which is pretty cool. I've played there once with Ganja White Knight. And I think I might have played there one more time after that with somebody else. <clears throat> but in and also uh Infrasound happens, I think, in Wisconsin. So that's like it's not a bad place to be, honestly, for electronic music. But yeah, at some point it doesn't matter. I think at some point, like you said, um you're touring like every weekend. So you're ending up in every city twice a year anyway. So you get to connect with the people that you need to be connecting with face-to-face a couple of times a year. How much of that do you think can be done remotely? Like, let's say there was a big coronavirus in Sydney and you couldn't, like, see Ryan in person for a long time. Like, do you think you could have gotten all of that done by just video conferencing and calls and stuff? I don't think I would have because, um, I mean, at the time, internet was not really, like, at the speed it was now. So you couldn't really do video calls anyway. Uh, And... Also, I was just a stoner at the time and hated. <laughs> I I, always, I hate talking on the phone as yeah, it is. Same. Yeah, talking. What is it about that that sucks? I think it's not getting feedback from the other person, like visual body language feedback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree, and that's kind of why I didn't want to do these podcasts ever remotely because I don't think it makes the conversation as in as engageful, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, you also talked about playing video games on your podcast and I was just wondering if you had a favorite game or you had a game you've been sinking a lot of time into. I just downloaded Counter-Strike again. Um, yeah, I think that's probably... What about the abs game? <laughs> oh, yeah, that is probably the game I've played the most in the last few days. So Jan bought these things called Stealth Core something or others. They're basically like a platform attached to like a pivot point and you lean on it like you plank on it and then you put your phone into a recessed thing in the middle of the board and it shows you shit on your phone using the accelerometer of your iphone or android or whatever and then you have to like twist and move the plank around and shit and you do it for like however long like two minutes or three minutes or however long you can do it for and it fucking kills your core man it is a really hard game so it's like I mean, really, the game is how strong your core is. It's not like it's a mind game at all. I mean, I guess it is kind of a mind game. It's like a game of how long can you do this for without giving up. Yeah, it'd be fun to imagine 
Like, what if all games just started using this planking interface instead of, like, normal controllers? Because that's the <laughs> kind of the whole idea of this game is, like, what if you're playing, like, a regular game on your phone, except instead of just being able to, like, touch it, touch your phone with your fingers, you have to plank and, like, shift your body to move the game. <laughs> I feel like or, people um, get really fit if we all had to do this to play any games. Or what if uh, to move around in the game you had to change your geolocation? <laughs> <laughs> with like your phone so it's like oh you want to move uh six meters to the right well you have to physically move six meters to the right with your your phone yeah i was it was like that uh, uh it was like a contest online where people tried to make the shittiest volume controls they could <laughs> yeah. and some guy made one where he was like oh your volume is this you need to move to a new location to change your volume and would like make the volume control based off the the geolocation of the laptop else yeah fuck that shit <laughs> all right next email i'm gonna go back to some of these start emails because i skipped a few uh leonard lap two says howdy mr bill being a fan since apophenia i have only one question and that's how do you prefer or how do you recommend people sort their sample libraries this is not a thing i have an answer for i don't think the way i do it is good because i constantly am losing shit you probably have a good answer for this, right? Like file organization? No, I kind of just leave things in the folders like of the packs that I downloaded them from mm -hmm. and then just try to keep them on like one downloads folder or something. But yeah, haven't found a good way to hmm. deal with that. So as a computer scientist, would you say that um, the folder tree structure system is even a good system for sorting files? Um, Honestly, no, because people are not good at going through trees right like if you imagine that you have like some sample and it's in some like really deeply nested folder it's kind of annoying to have to like click on like seven folders to get to it i think what would be way better interface wise is just like a program that sorts your um that kind of like takes all your samples and like automatically classifies them as like kicks mm. Um, so they have those, whatever. Right? Like those. Yeah, I think you showed me one of these. And yeah, it seems really cool. XLN Audio has one. You leave it, I think, running on your uh, your sample library for a day or something, and then it, it automatically figures it out using like spectral stuff and figures out what you know transient information and spectral information it has, and can decide whether or not that's a kick or a hi hat or a snare or whatever, and then puts them all on this big like visual map. Mm. So that's have one. You tried it? I have uh, no, but I've got had a lot of friends who have tried it, and they say it's good. Maybe I'll check it out later because nice. yeah, I've been actually thinking about how I could do this better for a while now, and maybe that is just the answer is just using that thing. I think what would be really cool as an interface is if you played a sound and then the interface just showed like twenty sounds that were really similar to mm. it. I think that's what this does. Really? Yeah, it builds a map and puts like stuff that's close together, like you know, close together. Nice. So the other thing. Um, I think because I also agree. I think the tree system is the dumbest shit ever. And I've had that idea for a long time now because I, especially when I'm going through periods of drinking a lot or smoking a lot of weed or something like that, my brain gets a little less good at doing shit. Um, I'm always like, man, how the fuck am I expected to remember that all of this shit is nested in all of these places? And the thought that I've had so many times is that tagging is just way better like the way that splice does it for instance you just say i want a drum and it's like all right here's all the things tagged with the name drum but then that also uh means you would have to go through and tag your entire library yeah i mean that's why a lot of tagging systems have haven't really panned out like in the world because 
So there used to be this proposal uh, that every website has to tag what every element on the website is. So if like you're going to a restaurant website and there's like a menu on it, the person who runs the website is supposed to tag it with like menu. And so the idea of doing this is then so machines, like computers can go through and like figure out what are all the menus on the internet and have like a giant list, which seems useful, right? Like if you're building something to just search through menus, you would suddenly have this large database of menus. The problem is people really hate having to manually tag stuff. Mm -hmm. So this never worked out because people were just too lazy to do it. Mm. So I think that's kind of the lesson here is like if tagging is going to work, it has to be done automatically. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Anything that is contingent on human input and every human agreeing to that input is never going to work because there's always going to be someone who's like, I don't want to. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of why like, um, I think I read somewhere that somebody was trying to solve the issue of not knowing whether or not a partner you were having sex with had STDs by creating a blockchain system where everybody had to upload their STD results to the blockchain. But there's no fucking way that everyone is going to agree to do that. Yeah, I guess like people are just not like to some extent people do care about public health, which is something we've seen with the coronavirus. Like people have started wearing masks and like doing stuff so that other people aren't harmed. But I think to a large extent, you can't just trust people to care enough to. Well, that's the whole reason the coronavirus is spreading in the first place is because not everybody agrees to care. Like, for instance, we were at the shop earlier today and we're supposed to be doing social distancing, but some fucking asshole thought it was really important to shimmy past me to get a bread roll. And it's like, dude, I'm like standing right here. I could be sick. You could now be infected because you think getting a bread roll is super important. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder if like one of the big lessons of the coronavirus pandemic is people will suddenly like be really aware of how things spread and like start to like distance themselves naturally from other people because maybe the person who like brushed past you in the grocery store was just like oh this isn't a big deal like there's no way i can catch it from just like walking by someone even though you you definitely can oh absolutely yeah yeah that's why i've been trying not to go outside because i think it is impossible to go outside and not come into contact with people who just don't give a shit yeah because i mean for starters like a litmus test of well i mean you know going outside is like step one of not giving a shit right and then i mean not necessarily like you can go outside and, and be really uh diligent about not going near people but definitely like the people you're going to find who don't care are definitely going to be outside they're not going to be in their house right well not necessarily actually but yeah um all right cool i think we answered that question pretty well all right andros says hey just submitting my question for tomorrow's podcast do you think you have a signature sound and if yes do you know or when you found it um do I think I, yeah, I think I have a signature sound and I think I found it through, I don't know. I think I just found it through process, like just figuring out how to do shit in my own way. And yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah. I would agree that you have a signature sound. Definitely. Like sometimes I'll hear tunes and be like, that's definitely like a bill right. tune. And it's hard to describe. I think your sounds like kind of it's kind of jazzy like it's very like technical and like jazz influenced right yeah i think the whole thing is just a product of using ableton a lot and then just developing certain ways of doing things um and these certain 
ways of, uh, you know, that I write melodies and certain ways that I, uh, process, you know, drums and stuff like that are all going to specifically, uh, Dirt Monkey is calling me. I'm just going to send him a sorry. I can't talk right now. (laughs) (laughs) Rejected. Uh, I'll call him back later. Uh, yeah, I think just these certain ways that you do things in a tune accumulate and then eventually, uh, equal, you know, your sound. Do you think you have a signature sound? Oh, not really. <laughs> How do you think you develop one? Uh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I think like everyone has their different, has like a different sense of what sounds good to me. Like there's no universal like aesthetic good. So like you, I think to a large extent, like every person's sense of what is good drives what kind of music they make. Because you're always like aiming towards what you think is really good, right? Mm. I don't know, actually, because sometimes I'll be like, I'm going to specifically, um, you know how you'll be going through like a sample library? Mm. You'll be like, oh, fuck that sound. Like that sounds <laughs> like shit. Sometimes I'll try a thing where every time I have that feeling of like, oh, I would never use that sound. Be like, all right, I'm going to force myself to use it specifically wow. because I don't like it. And specifically because I think it's bad. I'll try and force myself to use it and make a piece of music that I like using that shitty sound. That's cool. Do you usually try to like change the sound to make it good or do you you try to just work around its badness? Sometimes I try and just like sculpt the rest of the (laughs) shit around it to to contextualize it in a way that I think is good. Because I think that's one of the really interesting things about um, music like say Flume, right? Is he'll take something that's just the most bent out of shape modular thing that you you can tell was just some cut out of a mud pie that just sounds like absolute trash and that he's just tried to build a song around that that fits it like a glove to try and contextualize that thing and make that thing sound really musical Mm -hmm. and i find that to be pretty interesting uh as a concept so i try and do that sometimes all right next question uh what would you recommend for an artist to start releasing music without a fan base and Oh, let's answer that one first. Uh, what would you recommend for artists trying to release music without a fan base? Of uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I would just say put your shit on SoundCloud, put it on DistroKid, become a part of some Discord servers and uh, post around in those. Maybe Discord is like the forums of 2020. Maybe submit it to Gravitas Create because that was something that helped me early on. So Gravitas is this music label based in Austin and I bet there's other labels that do this too but they have this thing called Gravitas Create where they have like um well it used to be monthly I think it's way less often now they have like this semi-regular production challenge and usually they'll get like a hundred submissions or something and then they'll pick some ones that are good and then just like feature those and that's a good way to get like more people to listen to your tunes right and it's really like I think it's pretty equitable so like someone who has like zero SoundCloud followers can still like do this and get featured Mm. yeah yeah I think if you're making really good music there's no way that you won't get heard as well like for instance copycat he had like zero followers Mm -hmm. and but he was just so good at making music that he won a contest in Australia where you had to remix the play school theme song and play school (laughs) is like this children's show wow uh, and he remixed it and it was a really awesome remix. And actually Circuit Bent also did a really sick remix of it. Uh, and he and Coffee Cat won and then started getting known from there. And yeah, I think if you're just that good, people will will attune to what you're doing and be like, fuck, this person is really good at making music. 
like Alan Moore as well is another good example. Like he was mm-hmm. completely unknown. And then all of a sudden culprit posted about him being like, what the fuck? This kid is insane. And then also killed the noise posted about him as well. Also being like, this is the most insane shit I've ever heard. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, second question. How did I meet Azuki and what's her bunny's name? Well, we already talked about how I met Azuki. The bunny is actually named Azuki and the bunny was named that before I came up with that artist name. So yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what they say, uh, good artists do something, but great artists steal. (laughs) Yeah. The bunny was named that because he was a rescue and the rabbit shelter saw him and thought he looked like a bean. So they named him Azuki, which is a type of red bean. Huh. But he's not red. Oh, he's black, which is like similar, I guess. Black and red. (laughs) Yeah. Dark colored bean. Normal. Okay. (laughs) Okay, sick. Um, Podcast questions. My last name is pronounced Weil, if that helps. Okay, John Weil. What's up? Hey, Bill. Hope you're doing well. I had the pleasure of meeting you and Gardner before your most recent show in Atlanta, and I firstly wanted to say thank you for being such a chill person to meet and interact with. No worries. Question. How do you typically schedule your day, if at all? Do you have a set time for music or do you just tend to do it when you feel like it? I guess a part two to the question would be how much time do you spend per week, I guess, actually writing tunes versus other aspects of life slash more businessy type stuff. <clears throat> um, schedule wise, I go to sleep just whenever I'm tired and I wake up whenever I'm awake. Uh, and in terms of when I get music done, it's usually just at some point during the day i can't write too late at night now because i live in san francisco and i get noise complaints i don't really think i have that much of a schedule yeah you definitely have more i would say you have more of a schedule than a lot of people i've met without like nine to five jobs right in the sense that you usually get up like in the morning and then you go to sleep at night (laughs) and you work in between but I guess when you're touring, you kind of definitely have a schedule because you have to like go catch a flight and like. Mm, that's true. Yeah, stuff. when my schedule when I'm touring though is more like a, a like chunks of days. It's just like shit that I need to get done within a certain amount of days. So it's like <clears throat> Monday through Thursday, I need to get like whatever new songs I want to play that weekend finished and touched up and on my USB sticks. And then Friday morning I fly out and then it's usually a show on like Friday night, Saturday night. And then I'm back here on Sunday afternoon and then it starts again on Monday where I have to do the thing again between Monday and Thursday. Um, That's like my touring schedule usually, uh, which is fine. That's about as busy as I like to be, I think, with touring. It's still a lot, I feel like. And then usually the Monday to Thursday I try and go to the gym as well on those days. But yeah, I would say in terms of making music generally, I just wake up and I try and start writing music within the first few hours of waking up and then try and do a couple of hours of work at least. I I find personally, I can't actually really do more than maybe three or four hours of focused work on music at a time anyway. Can you? Mm, Very rarely, only if I'm like super in a flow state, which doesn't happen often. But even still, do you not find like at hour four, you're really not making any decisions that quickly and you're also not really making good decisions? I think that's true of most fields. Like when, like even when programming after like four hours, I need to take a break or else like the quality of what I'm doing goes down. But in either case, like you, 
Like if I think if you're really engaged with something, you can definitely do it for like eight hours straight. It's just like the you have to be aware the quality is going down and you have to correct for it the next day. Right, exactly. When you wake up again. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is when I first wake up and listen to a song in the morning, I'm like, oh, it very clearly needs these like 10 things. And then I'll just do those 10 things quickly. And that amount of shit that I'll do in the first 30 to 40 minutes of working will be equivalent to the next four to five hours of work of decisions that I make. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes wonder like, maybe is it just because that's all the song needed? Or is my decision-making process just going down? And I think it's probably a mixture of both. Yeah, I think especially with music, because so much of it is like listening to what you just made. Um, I think there's a process by which your brain gets like really used to it and then like becomes less objective over time in a session. Do you know about the cocktail party effect? No. So the cocktail party effect is like if we were at a cocktail party and there was a bunch of noise in the room and like, you know, when you're sitting in a bar and you can just hear all the chatter and it just sounds like noise basically. Mm -hmm. It's just like, like everyone talking and chattering. But then if I came and sat next to you and like directly talked to you, you could concentrate on my voice and you could understand it. Yeah. Because you're like seeing me talk and concentrating on it. So the cocktail party effect, um, the way that they explained it to us at university, they're like, all right, so what happens if you solo a snare in a mix and then you just listen to that snare for like a minute straight, mm. you're then concentrating on it. And then when you unsolo it, that snare then in your brain seems like the thing that's talking to you. Oh, interesting. And then it automatically will sound way louder than everything else in the mix. Right. So you have to be aware of that as well because you have the ability to solo shit constantly in a mix. And so one trick that they taught us at school was to never solo things but to rather mute things. Oh, interesting. So they're like, um, if you want to like figure out how the snare should sit or something like mute things around it i, was, I don't know I, I never liked that way of working i thought soloing things was the best thing you could do because like you get to hear all yeah. the detail of that single sound but i guess it doesn't matter what all that detail sounds like if it's not translatable in the mix right it's really cool advice i've never heard that yeah so i, I mean i don't think it's necessarily good advice but definitely the cocktail party effect is a real thing and definitely that is something that I think you don't have first thing in the morning because you're just listening to it as a big cohesive wall of sound. Yeah. And then slowly you start to tear that shit down because you've been listening to like multiple elements that are soloed. And then over time you're like, ah, oh, now everything kind of sounds unbalanced and different things sound louder to me and stuff because I've heard them all separately. Mm -hmm. And your brain starts to concentrate on the elements more. <clears throat> All right, Skylar Goodman says, hello, I have one question for each of you. Bill, if you're doing a collab with someone who works in a different DAW, how do you accurately communicate with them about where all of the stems go is there an elegant way to do this? Uh, the best way I've found is just to render all the stems from bar one to bar however, like let's say your song is 90 bars long, I'll just render everything from bar one to bar 100, just give them a bunch of silence at the end. And then I'll just say load all of the stems in starting from bar one underneath each other and everything should line up perfectly. And then, yeah, if some elements don't come in until bar 80, they're going to have a single stem that's 80 bars of silence and then a couple of sounds in the last 10 bars of the song from bar 80 to 90 and then 10 more bars of silence. And it's up to them to strip the silence out of that with editing on their end. But that's the most elegant way I've seen to do it. And usually turn off side chaining or <clears throat> yeah. do it without side chaining. I, I would do that. Yeah, it just seems less destructive for the end mix if you want to do a nice final mix. So there is this thing called an OMF file. Um, and what that is, is it's a basically a global 
ALS file. So you know how the ALS, which breaks down to be an XML or whatever, tells the session, like put a hi-hat here, put a piece of MIDI here at this note for this long at this velocity. Like it has all that information in the, in the ALS file. So this thing that's called an OMF file does the same thing different DAWs have the ability to load the OMF. So for instance, um, Cubase can load them, Pro Tools can load them, Logic I think can load them. So if you used Pro Tools and I used Cubase, uh, you could just send me your samples folder from Pro Tools of all the samples you use, like kicks and hi-hats and shit. And then you could export an OMF and then send me that OMF. And then I could just tell Cubase, hey, reference this samples folder and this OMF and rebuild the session that you had in Pro Tools using those two things. Uh, Ableton doesn't have the ability to do that, mm. which sucks. Dumb. Yeah. Uh, but that's another elegant, I think that's a way more elegant solution, but Ableton doesn't have the ability and I don't think Fruity has the ability and maybe Bitwig either. Mm. Yeah, so that sucks, but um, that's probably the most elegant solution. <clears throat> All right, this is for you, Jan. Uh, Jan, I've always been interested in learning to code but as a kid, I never really got past Hello World. <laughs> Do you have any recommendations for resources? I've done an insignificant amount of Java and Python, but I really want to learn C++. Oh my God. Yeah, C++ has like a, in my opinion, has a really steep learning curve as someone who didn't, you know, grow up programming and kind of self-taught uh, several years ago. I have been self-teaching C++ and I have not gotten very far beyond Hello World with it either. Um, but yeah, as far as resources go, I, like I always tell people, I think the best thing to do is to just think of a project that you really want to finish and then try to do that with coding. So I, I have a hard time learning from just reading books. So instead, I found what's been the most helpful is just saying... Like, this is something I want to build. And then, like, Googling Stack Overflow or other resources for, like, the steps towards building that, if that helps. So I, th I think it really helps to be motivated by a project that you really want to do. And Stack Overflow, it's kind of like Yahoo Answers for coding, <laughs> right? Uh, I guess. But I feel like Yahoo Answers is kind of an unfair comparison. But it is one of the better resources where it's, you know you can ask any question about coding and most likely someone will post an answer so it's like the gear sluts for yeah okay that's a better <laughs> one yeah it's the gear sluts of coding dude gear sluts is the worst it's like you go in there and ask a simple question about acoustics and someone will be like oh you don't want to do that and they'll like explain <laughs> yeah. all this crazy shit to you um yeah, I'm with Skylar. I I can't get past Hello World. I can't get past the command line. Yeah, I think that trips up a lot of people who who are starting programming because you can't just like. There's very few programming environments where you can just like download something and kind of start working with it without knowing stuff like how the file system works and like how to run things in a terminal. So yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's kind the of a bummer. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I still don't really understand is like how scripts run and where the file comes from. Like with Ableton, I totally get like you have this ALS, there's a bunch of information in there that tells all the samples and shit where to go. It references this sample folder over here. And, you know, when you collect all and save it, like puts them all there from the other parts. Like I understand exactly how that sort of file shit works. But when it comes to coding and executing scripts and like putting this like 
layer of abstraction through this terminal thing there uh, for some reason fucks with me and I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I think the terminal is like a really unintuitive interface for people who've never used it before. It's just this like black square where you type in stuff and then you hit enter and then like stuff runs. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say to that. Mm. But yeah, it's just kind of a learning barrier. I mean, there are languages where you don't really have to work with a terminal much. Um, for instance, if you're doing like web-based JavaScript, you can just run that directly in your browser. And perhaps that's like a lot easier for some people to think about. Nice. Yeah, maybe yeah. I should maybe I should try that. Yeah. All right. Next question. We have damn a bunch. There's actually more questions coming in as we do this podcast. Oh no. <laughs> All right. Sander Cools. That's a sick name. Hi, Mr. Bill. I have a question about ground loops or magnetic static fields. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is my uh, be awesome. This is my field of expertise. <laughs> right now I'm working with a DeepMind 12 synthesizer, RD8 drum computer, and a microphone. Sometimes when I record sounds, I have this annoying high frequency that I can't filter out, and it's ruining a lot of my recordings. I already tried to cancel it out with a USB ground loop isolator between my sound card and computer, but that didn't work. So I'm thinking it's maybe some kind of magnetic field. It seems to stop when I unplug the power from my synth but it would be a shame if I wasn't able to use this anymore. Have you stumbled on this before and what would be a solution? Uh, solution number one tells me that you should just unplug your synth when you're doing recordings with your drum machine or your microphone. Uh, solution number two would be to put soothe on everything to cut out that annoying high frequency. Solution number three would maybe be trying to move your synth to a different part of the room and sit it on a different surface. And maybe try a different outlet. What Like if you take your synth into the lounge room, like away from your studio and plug it into a completely different outlet, does it still make the sound? I would probably assume not. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I would say try moving it to a different circuit like on your house and maybe just try shielding it somehow. I don't know. I'm not an electrician, but it seems like maybe there's some kind of like metal faraday cage grating you can put between your synth and your recording device that would help faraday cage yeah so i mean as you so i'm, I'm not like i have a physics background i have no like practical electrician background so i have no idea if this is like even useful advice but in faraday uh, in, in physics faraday cages are basically these like metal cages that prevent all electromagnetic fields from going in or out of them so are you saying this guy should put his synth inside a Faraday cage? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to say. It's, it sounds very practical to me. Yeah, he said it would be a shame if he wasn't able to use his synth, though. <laughs> well, you can just get it in a Faraday cage with the synth. All right, you get in the cage with the synth. <laughs> the rest of your gear stays outside, all right? Yeah. You got that? All right, Christian Vazquez says, So that opening melody in your halftime EP, Earthglow, is the most beautiful thing. Can you tell us how you came up with that? Or was it a happy accident and you and Gator just toyed with it? If you can remember off the top of the head, I'd like to know if it's a sample you tinkered with. Is there any FMM going on? What kind of waveform was it? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I think I don't remember how it was made. I think Gator might have made it actually. Uh, the next question is, have you talked to Liquid Stranger about being a guest on his show? Uh that would be cool and we would expect it when quarantine is over. Uh, no, I haven't, but I would love to go on his show. I like that a lot of producers are starting podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Um, Dirt Monkey is starting one too. It's called Unpeeled and it's just a bunch of uh, 
mixes and it's like different to this podcast it's not not as much talking it's more like music and stuff um and i think taboo just started one too all right this guy called land of bits said hey mr bill hope you're doing well with the whole coronavirus quarantine situation one did you release any material for your secret project the hip hopish idm similar to boards of canada one no i did not and i don't know if i will two any plans on inviting tipper on the podcast um I've asked him a bunch of times and he doesn't think he's interesting enough. Yeah, which is crazy. Because <laughs> literally everyone, like one out of two people who asked for anyone on the podcast has asked for Tipper. He's you definitely know. like the most requested guest. You've you've met Dave. Do you think he's interesting enough? He's super interesting. Yeah, I think he's just like kind of, I don't know, doesn't like talking on podcasts or something. No, uh, I, th- I think he just has crazy artistic anxiety in sense of like he just thinks that everything he does is not good enough. Like he, he, well, not that it's not good enough, but he told me once, like when he sits down to write tunes that he feels like he's, he just has forgotten how to write music every time. And he's like, fuck, how did I write every other piece of music? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think he has weird artistic anxieties and therefore I don't know if he would come on the podcast for that reason. All right. Next question. Uh, what, are the most important tips for beginners who have been learning for three years? Mm, I don't know. Don't give up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Silas Pine says, would you ever play a private event? What's your favorite sound system to play on? And can I remix a Mr. Bill tune? Uh, Playing private events is pretty fun. I would do that. But I think it's like the money has to be right still. Like I I wouldn't want to. The problem with private events is like a lot of events don't have like a lot of money around them because you generate money for an event based on ticket sales, right? And if you don't have a lot of ticket sale money coming in, it's hard to pay the artists and hard to pay for production and stuff like that. And then your idea as an artist going into it is that it's going to be a worse event and that you may not get paid or something like that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I don't have a problem with playing private events. It's just usually they seem sketchy for that reason. Uh, favorite sound system to play on? Do you have a favorite sound system to play on? Um, no, I think Function One sound really good, but that's like a very popular opinion. So yeah, have you played on Function Ones before? I have. Yeah, I think uh, Priceless. You play a lot of private events too, right? Yeah, um, I think that's partly a function of being in San Francisco, where there's just a lot more. I think relative to other cities, we have like a lot more private based music events as opposed to like public ones. Mm, there's also a lot of money in this city as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's probably why. Yeah. Or rather, yeah, some of the private events I've seen here have actually been pretty sweet. It's just easier sometimes because if you're throwing a private event at a private venue, it doesn't have to be like a venue that's licensed to like have sound. Um, I learned recently from a friend who owns a bar in San Francisco that if you are running an official music venue that can like host public music events you have to have wheelchair accessibility and so like for him to do that for his bar it would be really or at least for like the upper floors where they're having music events would be really prohibitively expensive so for him it just makes way more sense to rent to private events right true and the other question is can you remix a mr bill tune yes go get a project file off my uh, website and you can do it all right this is a question for both of us any happy accidents that played a big role in one of your tracks 
feel like constantly, right? Like every, it feels like everything I do is an accident. So this leads me to the next, uh, to a more interesting question, I think, which is like, if everything that you think happens in your music is a happy accident almost, which I also agree with, I think like a huge portion of things that end up as final things in my tracks is not intentional stuff or not, not stuff that I intended in the first place, but rather just happened. And and then I decided to keep it. Um, so basically a thing happened. I didn't mean to do it, but I made the choice to keep it in the song. Uh, how how does this affect your opinion on AI music? Um, I don't know if it would affect my opinion on AI music. Like Even I don't really you... see the relationship between the questions. Oh, so um so I guess my thought is if such a big component of writing music for both of us and probably a lot of people is happy accidents that we just decide to keep, um, then how would AI make those decisions? Oh, it would just have a random like a random number generator. And like it would basically roll die and like map that to a sound and like keep that sound right. Like I think AI could do something similar to what people do by just using randomizers. Mm. Right. Yeah, I suppose. But then, do you not think that like the randomizer would then actually sound completely random? Whereas in a human context, it's like not necessarily random. It's something you pick because it sounds to be somewhat musical, or you can figure out a way in which to contextualize it musically. So I think AI could also simulate, again, I'm not an AI expert, but I think like basically if we were taking our process and converting it to a program, it would be, um, you know, run a randomizer, like pick some random set of sounds, uh, play those in the context of a song, like, and then evaluate like if they're good or not. And if they're really bad, then you throw them out. And if they're like kind of good, then you keep them and like do stuff with them. So yeah, again, I think all of this stuff can be done by computers. Right. And then you would just like, do that enough times so that the AI learns, okay, these are okay to keep. And Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, that's kind of like the hard part of AI uh, for arts and music is just like training it on what is good and what is bad in, in by our standards. Right. right. Yeah, another thing I've heard is that um, you could potentially run some sort of uh, observational software on your computer that just watches all of your movements in a certain DAW, like in a, in an app, right? Like, uh, say Ableton and it could just view all of your actions and like save them all to a log. And then, uh, after maybe 12 months of doing this, it could just be like, all right, you, you like this kind of spectral information a lot in your kick drums and you like to build beats this way most of the time and so on and so forth and could eventually just be able to generate a piece of music based on all of those constraints. Right. I wonder if it'd be easier to do that or if to just feed an AI like a render of all your uh, complete and not and incomplete music and just be like, make stuff that sounds like this. All right, this. like just spectrally similar stuff. Yeah, just like feed it a bunch of stuff and be like, copy this style. Because like AI is pretty good at doing this for art, like visual art as far as I understand. Because people have made these apps that, um, you know, you feed it a photograph and it renders the photograph in the style of a famous Van Gogh painting or something like that. So it's also incredibly good at doing it for voice. Like there's that thing called liarbird.ai on, online, and you give it, um, I want to say like 30 to 50 sentences of your own voice, where you just like, it, it tells you a sentence to say, and then you say the sentence. And then at the end, you go, all right, I've given you enough uh, training data. Uh, now you type into another box what you want it to say. So I could just say, hi, my name is Bill. And then you just hit go and it 
punches out something that sounds exactly like your voice, basically. I mean, it sounds a little bit computery and robotic, but it definitely sounds like your voice, which is crazy. All right, next question. Uh, what's going on, Mr. Bill? Not sure if you've heard of Resonant Language, but he's super tight. And then he sent me a link. Yep, I have heard it. And then he's like, sent a second email where he's like, oh, wait, sorry, forgot to ask a question. <laughs> uh, is there a plugin where I can create those vinyl scratching sounds? Or would you recommend to purchase a vinyl and scratch on my own? I mean, if you want to do it like the super legit way, definitely scratching on your own is the way to do it. And you can do that using Serato or a real uh, deck or whatever. Um, but I would suggest probably, um, I mean, you could just get samples online of people scratching and just sample them to like Qubit uh, beat. What are those things called where they're like scratching and competing against each other? Like vinyl, I don't know. Like two people going like wiki wiki yeah. and then the other guy's like, no, wiki wiki you. And, then, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I definitely think you could just sample that shit. Uh, or you could... Um, use this plugin by my buddy Fine Cut Buddies called La Petite Scratch that he made in Max for Live. That's really good and sounds pretty believable. Uh, all right. Uh, a guy with simply the name Ben says, my question, any suggestions for me as a producer who isn't really familiar with EDM genres? I don't really know how to categorize my own tracks a lot of the time because I typically can't tell the difference between dubstep, techno, psytrance, bass music, and lots of other terms I hear you and other producers use. Oh, there's a great website for this. Um, Ishka's? Yeah, yeah, Ishka's thing. Yeah. Yeah, you should check out Ishka's Guide to Electronic Music. Um, and then he said, how would I learn more about what is the different tropes and characteristics i'm not really hung up on sticking to a genre for anyone's sake other than or, or anyone else's standards or anything but it seems like a useful skill set who people who have a long history of listening to edm may take for granted i would agree i think it's interesting um to be able to be writing a song and then be like oh you know what like would be super sick if this just dropped into some crazy like jersey shit or like you know i'm gonna do some old uh uk garage vibe here or something like that i definitely think that is useful maybe um but yeah i think ishka's guide to electronic music is probably a good good place to learn that the only other way to do it right is to maybe listen to a shitload of playlists on spotify of different genres or spend a decade going to parties <laughs> of different genres yeah, I guess like the way I kind of started learning was I would go to an event and then like I would read the description and it'd be like, this person's like a blah, 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 garage artist. And I'd be like, okay, so that's what garage sounds like. <coughs> yeah. But I, mean, I think Ishka's thing is way more efficient for getting the same level of knowledge. So for those who aren't familiar, this is this really cool website where it kind of shows a timeline of all the different genres of electronic music. And then you can play samples in each genre. So the way I did it is, um, and this is not, I'm not suggesting anybody do this, uh, is I would go to parties in Sydney and they were generally either a warehouse party in the city or they were out in the bush and they were called a doof. And I would take heinous amounts of acid at these parties and I would stay there listening to music for like 12 hours straight or I mean longer sometimes. And they wouldn't stop playing music the entire time. So I would just be basically on psychedelics or AKA a really uh engaged like mental state just listening to music for long periods of time and then after i would leave the event those pieces of music or like the entire like vibe of the genre was just like stuck in my head for like days after that like for instance i, w I remember going to a drum and bass party with my friend once 
getting really high on acid and then we caught the train home and on the way home like all the like chick 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 shit of the train tracks just sounded like drum and bass to me <laughs> i could just hear it going like dum, dum, gaf, dum, dum, gaf, dum, dum, gaf. <laughs> like just from the train rattling around That's awesome yeah and i'm sure if i had gone to a psytrance party it would have just been the same thing but i would have it would have just sounded like psytrance to me <laughs> um so for me i got it heavily like i think that's the way i learned about genre, different genres in electronic music is just by exposing myself to them for long periods of time and then you leave the event and you're like oh okay i definitely think i know how this genre works now all right uh next question how did you guys meet each other we already talked about that uh Jan, what's your favorite part of working at brave hmm I think it's going to be 50-50, like, the mission and the people. Because I like all my coworkers because they're really smart and easy to work with. But also, they're kind of aligned on a mission. So I think Brave is small enough and has done the right process with hiring such that most of the people we hire just really care about the same thing, which is making the web a better place and making this browser that really, like, um, you know, works for the users and is a good product and is privacy respecting and, and such. So it's nice that most people are on, are, are on the same page about that. And it's nice to just work somewhere where I feel like we have a good mission and we're all aligned towards it. Do you like the schedule? I do. So we're, um, so I guess everyone's work from home now because of coronavirus but brave has been largely work from home slash working remotely since i started four years ago so um yeah we do have like much more flexible schedules than like a nine to five job yeah that's one thing i yeah i like about uh program is that it seems like their job they can just sort of do it at nighttime if they want or they can do it in the day or whatever it seems like there's a lot of things set up for people to just do their best work because it's like flexible as to how you do the work. Yeah, and I hope that more fields move towards that. So I used to work at Yahoo a long time ago. And when I was there, there was a really strict no working from home policy. Everyone, even if they lived like 40 miles away from the office, like I did, had to go into the office every day and work mm. at normal hours. And I think that's just not the most productive thing because like... For me, office are, offices are really distracting because there's people walking by all the time and like people try to talk to me about stuff and it's like not a good time to talk. And also, uh, you know, the office closes at some point and then you have to go home. And the nice thing about working from home is there's no like time that you have to leave. You can just keep working if you want. Mm. Or if you want to take a break in the middle of the day and there's nothing going on then, then you can do that. So I think giving people more flexibility is good. And hopefully that's something people realize after working from home during the coronavirus is that we should just make our work permanently like this. Right. Um, what did you do at Yahoo? I was a security engineer. So I was working on this project to encrypt all of the email in Yahoo Mail. Hmm. And I don't think it's, uh, maybe it's still active. I haven't heard about it in a while, but it was never like a huge priority when I was there. So we never shipped it. Right. Yeah. And was that the thing that got you in the Forbes 30 under 30? Um, so, by the way, I think the Forbes 30 under 30 is not a very legit accomplishment. <laughs> it's not, certainly not like something I'm actually really proud of. But, um, yeah, I, I think it was. I think I got that title when I was working there. 
And it's also not 30 people. It's like 600 people. So it's not even that special. <laughs> it's really the Forbes 600 under 30. Yeah, exactly. It's the 600 <laughs> under 600. Because <laughs> we're all under 600. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's also the, it's the 600 under 30, but it's also the 600 under 600. Exactly. Yeah, 600 under 600 has a better ring to it. <laughs> they should just call it that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, they should call it the 600 under just like any number above 30. Just pick a random one. <laughs> uh, all right, we've, we're pretty close to being done here. Oh, and this is for both of us. Uh, Bill and Yarm, when did you start an interest in making music? Um, I started an interest in making music when I was maybe like, well, electronic music when I was probably like 18. And it had a big part of me just going to a lot of these parties. And I was like, I want to make that kind of stuff because playing a guitar seems limiting. Um, I would say I became interested in making any kind of music when I was 12 and I joined my high school band and was like, oh, orchestral music's kind of cool. Let's try to make some of that. Um, and I really only became interested in electronic music when I was like 26, which was two or three years ago. <laughs> so three um, years ago. What did you play in band? Um, I played flute and piccolo. And it was awesome. It was very high pitched. I think that's actually kind of influenced the way my ears works because I spent like seven years in a band just playing these like really high pitched instruments and having to like really pay attention to the higher end of the orchestra. So I think even now, like when I listen to music, like my ears just kind of focus on like high synths <laughs> as opposed to drums and other elements. Yeah, I would agree the same thing for my music except because i played drums for a long time i concentrate a lot on like the groove of the whole thing and making sure that like everything is sitting correctly rhythmically all right we have one more question it's from this guy naprig who always i think hits us up on twitter um one which complete libraries do you two like the most oh like uh native instruments complete or like some other how's sorry yeah. can i look at this email? yeah he just, it says complete i would say it's yeah con- that's like the native instruments yeah. thing i would say contact is what he's talking about yeah um i like yeah i actually really like contact and there's some cool flute samples in it in the world <laughs> instruments section You're like mm, how about those flute samples <laughs> yeah how about those flutes <laughs> yeah i would i would um i think my favorite contact library might be that toy one i was using yesterday <laughs> oh that one was sweet because there was like a toy that you could spin and that was actually yeah. like a dial or something yeah it was called kinetic toys nice. that's a pretty fun one is that a default or did you have to i had to download it, it. well I, it comes with complete 12 but mm. yeah i had to install it it's not installed by default like the contact factory library all right two samples other than splice what websites or youtube channels do you get samples from the only quality follies I have at the moment are from ASMR channels. <laughs> Isn't uh, there like freesound.org yeah. or something? Freesound.org is kind of hit and miss though because, I don't know, some, you know, anyone can upload anything to it. So it can be sketchy sometimes. Nice. Frequent uses this cool one. It's sort of like Splice, but it's only for insanely high quality Foley samples. And it's like you would use it. It's basically like the splice for like movie sound designers. Uh, I don't know what it's called. I can't remember. It might be called like Soundly or something like that. Uh, three. 
What do you suggest for those of us with an iterative creative process? I often have a way easier time remixing other musicians' music or doing the response side of call and response. So like if you need a thing to react to, like you need a place to start from before you can be creative, what do you suggest? Oh, sometimes I've done this thing where I like take um, a sample or like a, a stem or something and then like make a song around that and then just delete that stem and replace it with something else. Mm, that's a good idea. Yeah. But then I, I find that's not very satisfying because I'm like, oh, it sounded better with the original stem. Yeah. So you get this thing called temp love or demo-itis. Uh, Temp love is a term that I learned about when I was doing the film scoring thing. And that's like a lot of people when they're making films, they'll just chuck like a Hans Zimmer thing under it or something, right? Like a, the Interstellar soundtrack or something. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you replace that with anything else, the film immediately feels wrong because mm -hmm. you like built and edited the whole narrative to this mm -hmm. thing and now it feels weird. Uh, yeah, so I, I get that. I, I don't like building things around certain thing and making it work really well for that thing and then replacing that thing, right? Yeah. It's like kind of like if you build your whole song around a kick drum and a snare and then you try and replace the kick and snare, like you'll never find a better sounding kick and snare really for, for that yeah. song. Uh, all right, four. What should new Ableton users learn to automate first in terms of effects and synths when it comes to making wonky, spongly stuff? <laughs> I would say frequency shifters and uh, filters and, um, I don't know, phases. Anything that fucks with the phase of stuff, I think, is where it's going to start to sound all all squiggly and uh, and psychedelic. And lastly... What are your favorite restaurants you ate at in the cities you toured in? Let's just talk about restaurants in San Francisco for a minute. Which are all shut right now, by the way. Yeah. Uh, my favorite restaurants. Should we even mention them here or will people try to hang out at them? No, I, I think they're we're all cool. closed. You can't hang out at any of these right That's now. That's a good point. All right. Favorite restaurants. Um, China Live, which is an incredible dumpling spot, is yeah. a really good one. Um, Burmese Super or Burma Superstar. Really yep. fucking good Burmese food. Uh, what Bill else? has a list. I do have a list. Should I just read my list? You just post your list at some point. Yeah, I should just post it at some point. I'm going to read out of it quickly though. Uh, Lolo in the Mission does really good tacos. Esperanto also in the Mission, really good tapas. Swan Oyster Depot. Oh, which I still haven't been to. Really incredible seafood. Bar Crudo, also really good seafood. Uh Pecan or Pecan, the poke taco place. It's pretty sick. Dancing Yak, really good Indian place. Um, I don't know, there's tons. I'll post my list at some point. Yay. Um, all right, cool. We did all the questions. Oof. Uh, thanks. I appreciate you doing the podcast with me again. Yeah, no problem. I hope everyone's staying safe and quarantined. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.